0: But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Tell me, how many of you have ever heard the old expression, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is? I suspect that most of us at one point or another in our lives or careers have had experiences or encounters that lend credence to that old adage. Stories and promises that just seem to be so amazing, so extraordinary, that we can't help but be skeptical. In January of 1920, for instance, a bright young entrepreneur by the name of Charles Ponzi leased a small office in Boston, Massachusetts, and started his own investment firm. His plan was to buy discounted postal reply coupons from overseas, and then redeem them here in the United States at a much higher rate. Ponzi insisted that his plan was a surefire way for a person to get rich, and to get rich fast. And he promised all would-be investors an astonishing rate of return—a 50 percent profit, he said, in the first 45 days, and a 100 percent profit in the first 90. His plan became an immediate sensation; the number of investors multiplied rapidly. And in the short matter of a few weeks, Ponzi and that original group of investors had indeed become fantastically rich. They were raking in millions of dollars. Well, other people heard about the plan. They began mortgaging their homes, cashing in their life savings, whatever they could do to get in on the action. But if the Ponzi scheme of getting rich and getting rich fast sounded too good to be true, well, that's because in the end... It was. Oh, it's true. That original group of investors was paid off just as Ponzi had promised. But it wasn't because the business was making a legitimate profit. Quite the contrary. The business was operating at a steep loss. Ponzi was simply paying off earlier investors with money that was coming in from later investors. There was no profit at all. The entire thing was a sham. And eventually he was found out, arrested and the entire scheme went belly up. Thousands of people, from newsboys to captains of industry, were financially ruined as a result of the Ponzi scheme. It would become one of the most notorious swindles in the nation's history. It was too good to be true. Well, you know, that is exactly what many people think when it comes to the event we are celebrating today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They think, like the Ponzi scheme, this is just too fantastic, too extraordinary to actually be true. But folks, I want you to know that that is not necessarily the case. In fact, for those who are willing to suspend their skepticism and doubt for just a moment and think through it, it becomes abundantly clear that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most reasonable thing in the world. To begin with, the resurrection, unlike the Ponzi scheme, is not the work of mere men. It is the work of Almighty God, the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the planets, the stars, the solar system, the multiplicity of life forms that we see here on earth. Well, you ask yourself, if God can do all of that, if He can create by the sheer power of His Word, ex nihilo, out of nothing, is raising someone from the dead all that difficult? The obvious answer is no. Furthermore, for those who are willing to spend the time and the effort, they will discover that there is some very compelling evidence in support of the resurrection. In the words of one skeptic turned believer, the resurrection is the best attested event in all of history. Which means that Easter, my friends, is not a message that is too good to be true. This is a message that is too good to be true. To be missed. Now, in order to understand this fully, we need to be very clear, crystal clear, right from the start, as to what we actually mean and do not mean when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we say that God, on that first day of the wake, raised Jesus from the dead, we are not saying, as some have suggested, that it was merely the Spirit of Jesus that rose in the hearts of his disciples. You know, every now and then when you're walking through the city, especially up toward the college, you'll see a young person wearing a t-shirt with the face of Che Guevara on it, the Argentinian revolutionary, a t-shirt that says, Che lives. Well, that t-shirt does not necessarily mean that Che Guevara is still alive. Actually, he was executed back in 1967. No, that t-shirt simply means that the spirit of Che, that is to say what he stood for, what he represented, that continues to live on in the hearts and the minds of his followers. Well, there's certainly something to be said for that kind of an idea, but we need to note that that is not what we mean when we speak of the resurrection. We do not mean that it's only the spirit of Jesus that is alive, that Jesus was raised only in some sort of metaphorical or symbolic way. No, we mean something categorically different. Likewise, when we speak of the resurrection, we do not mean that Jesus was merely resuscitated. You may not be aware of it, but Jesus was not the only person to come back from the dead. Did you know that? There are at least five others mentioned in the New Testament alone by name. In the Gospels, we have the widow of Nain's son, the daughter of the synagogue ruler Jairus, and Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And then later on in the book of Acts, we meet two others, a woman by the name of Dorcas or Tabitha, who Peter raised from the dead, and a man from Troas named Eutychus, who the apostle Paul brought back to life. Now, all five of those individuals, just like Jesus, died and they were brought back to life. But here's the difference. All five of them remained mortal. They are not still with us today. That is to say, they were brought back to life, but eventually they became sick and they died again. I'll be honest with you, I think they're some of the most pitiful people in all of history. I mean, it's bad enough to go through the process of dying once, but who wants to go through that again? That is not what we mean when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't mean a mere resuscitation. No, we mean, and this is vitally important. If you don't understand this, you'll not understand Christianity at all. We mean that on that first day of the week, God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, did something astounding. He arrested the entire process of decay and decomposition, He reached down and rescued Christ out of the realm of the dead. He gave Jesus an altogether new body as a vehicle for His personality. A physical body, to be sure. One that could be seen and one that could be touched. But a body that was now glorified. A body that was incorruptible. A body that could never become sick or diseased. A body that would never die. Now, nothing like that had ever happened before. And nothing like that has ever happened But the implications of that extraordinary event for your life and for mine, the implications are profound. They're immediate. They're personal. What do I mean? Well, for starters, I mean that the resurrection proves beyond any doubt that Jesus really is who He claimed to be. And during the course of his three-year ministry, Jesus went up and down the length and breadth of ancient Palestine, preaching the gospel and making some extraordinary claims for himself. Claims that if we take them at face value are either the words of a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of glory. For instance, Jesus claimed to have the power to forgive people their sins. Once the people brought to him a man who was lame in the hope that Jesus might heal him. But the first words out of Jesus' mouth were these, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus claimed to be equal with God Almighty. His disciples said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, how much longer must I be with you? Don't you understand, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? He claimed to be the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. He said, I am the true bread which comes down from heaven and satisfies the deepest hunger of the soul. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And he said, whoever follows after me, he will not sit in darkness, he shall have the light of life. Now those are extraordinary claims. Who says that sort of thing? You and I live in a time and a place where it's possible for people to say all sorts of outlandish things and expect to get away with them. But that wasn't the way it was in the first century. Many people regarded Jesus' claims as dangerous. They were certainly dangerous politically. The political situation in that part of the world in that time was very, very fragile. The Jews were a conquered people. They were vassals of the Roman Empire. And their leaders, particularly the priests, owed their ongoing influence and position to their willingness to cooperate with the Roman authorities. And yet here was one of their own, a teacher going around the countryside saying that he was the true king of the Jews, that he was God in the flesh, that he was Lord as if to imply that Caesar was not. Now listen, folks, that is dangerous stuff. That borders on sedition. Now, yes, if those were just the ramblings of a disordered mind, people might possibly shrug their shoulders, roll their eyes, and laugh Him to scorn. But you see, that's just the problem. Jesus never struck anybody as a madman. He came across as perfectly sane and at times incredibly popular. So His words were dangerous politically. They were also dangerous theologically. To be a Jew in the first century and claim equality with God was blasphemy. It was a violation of the Ten Commandments and it was punishable by death. Once in His hometown of Nazareth, Jesus declared Himself to be the Messiah and the people became so angry, they seized Him, took Him out to the brow of a hill and attempted to throw Him off. Those were the kinds of claims that Jesus made. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. His claims did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. They produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. But there was never any trace of people expressing mild approval or mild disapproval. And C.S. Lewis is right. And that is why the resurrection is so important. It's because the resurrection vindicates all of Christ's claims. When God raised him on the first day of the week, it meant that everything Jesus had said about himself, no matter how outlandish it may have seemed at the time, was in fact true. He really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He really is the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to the Father. He really is that true bread which satisfies the hunger of the soul, and He really is the one with whom you and I have to deal. You see, the resurrection makes Jesus the one unavoidable personality. Let's just go ahead and admit it. We all, every single one of us, has someone in our life that we would like to avoid. You know who I'm talking about. You see them coming towards you on the street, and you quickly turn the corner. You see them in the grocery store, and you dive into the next aisle. You just don't want to deal with them. You just don't want to engage with them. Well, listen, there is no avoiding Jesus Christ. The resurrection proves that He is God in the flesh. And that means, either in this life or the next, sooner or later, every single one of us is going to have to deal with Jesus. The resurrection proves that He is everything He claimed to be. And it proves that He ought to be our everything too. So the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The resurrection does something else, however. The resurrection is the proof that the price for your sin and for mine, the price of our redemption, has been paid in full. Mark Twain once said, man is the only animal who blushes and the only one who needs to. His point being, that we all have those things in our lives of which we are ashamed. Those things which we have done and left undone. Those things for which our conscience nags us, torments us, condemns us. Shame and guilt are the worst feelings in the world. A well-known psychiatrist once said that he could dismiss all of his patients in an instant if only He could assure them of their forgiveness. Well, you know, there's a very good reason why you and I have these feelings of shame and guilt. It's because the Bible says we are guilty. We stand before the bar of God's ultimate justice condemned aside from all those things that we do to other people that fill us with a sense of shame and guilt we are supremely guilty the scripture says when it comes to our relationship with god because we are sinners now some of you might be out there thinking to yourself oh we can't even escape it on easter it's the only thing preachers ever want to talk about is sin isn't it tiresome on easter I want you to understand sin, my friends, is what Easter's all about. Sin is why Christ died on the cross, and it's the reason why he was raised. And this becomes very clear when we stop and consider the nature of sin, what it really is. Sin is not the same thing as making a mistake. We all make mistakes. Calling someone by the wrong name accidentally, well, now that's, that's a mistake. But it's not a sin. Nor is sin the same thing as committing a crime. A crime is a violation of the laws of man. If you run a red light and you get pulled over and receive a ticket, it's because you've committed a crime. But that's not necessarily a sin. No, a sin is something that is much worse. A sin is a violation of the laws of Almighty God. It's a violation of His laws. And because God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to violate His law is to attack His character. It is to make an assault upon His sovereignty. Did you ever notice when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses? It's because every time we sin, and we all do, We are trespassing on God's territory. Basically, what we're saying is, God, you're off the throne. I'm on the throne. I'm in charge. And you go sit over there in the corner and behave yourself, and I'll call on you if I want you or I need you. But otherwise, I'm going to do it the way Frank Sinatra did it. My way. Well, how does God regard that upstart attitude? The Scripture says God regards it as treason, as treachery. and The penalty for it is death. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Ah, but you see, the marvelous message of the Gospel, the wonderful message of Christianity is there on Good Friday on the cross, Jesus Christ offered Himself as the payment for your debt and for mine. Jesus Christ willingly took our place on the cross that the debt might be paid and that you and I might go free, that we might be reconciled to God. Somebody has said He paid a debt He didn't know, because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. You know, in the ancient world, whenever a royal child, that is to say the son or daughter of a king or a queen, misbehaved, they could not be punished like other children. No commoner could lay a hand on a royal child. But that child still needed to learn obedience. So what was the solution? It was the creation of what became known as a whipping boy. Whenever a royal child misbehaved, an innocent child would be brought in. The charge would be read out and then the punishment would be meted out, but the punishment would not be meted out on the royal child. It would be meted out on the innocent child. In this case, the innocent punished that the guilty might go free. Do you understand that on the cross, Jesus Christ became your whipping boy? God meted out the punishment that you and I deserved on Him. That by His stripes, you and I might be set free. That is why we call the Christian message, the Gospel, good news. Because it's good news for you and for me. It means that we no longer have to try and earn God's favor or His love or His affection or His acceptance. Everything that needed to be done in order for us to be reconciled to God as dearly loved children has already been done for us. That's what Jesus meant when on the cross He said, it is finished. He meant that everything, everything that was necessary had been done. Now that is a marvelous message. But if you think about it, it does beg a serious question, doesn't it? How are we to know for sure? How are we to know beyond any doubt that Christ's sacrifice was effective? That it really was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. How are we to know that God the Father accepted Christ's payment? Well, listen, we would never know if Jesus had remained in the tomb. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians when he says, if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. But he hastens to add, Christ has been raised, and he said, that is how we know for certain that the payment has been accepted. God raised him from the debt. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever shopped at Costco? When you shop at Costco, and you're getting ready to leave that building... Before you get out of that building with that cart piled high with merchandise, most of which we probably don't need, but as you're getting ready to leave that building with all that merchandise, before you can leave, you must present something to the clerk at the door with a marker in hand. What do you have to present? The receipt. You're not getting out of that building until you can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have paid in full the price. Easter is the receipt for Good Friday. It is the proof that Christ has paid in full the price for your sin. Every sin you've ever committed. Every sin you ever will commit. The old hymn put it well. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So the resurrection proves that Jesus is who He claims. The resurrection proves that the price for our sin has been paid in full. The resurrection does one thing more for us this morning. The resurrection proves that for those who believe these things and whose lives are hidden in Christ, the story, your story, my story will have a happy ending. In case you haven't noticed, the world is a mess. Most of us would probably admit it's worse off now than it's ever been at any point in our lives. You look at what's going on over there in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, you see all the misery and the suffering. You turn your eyes back here to the West, it's not much better. The spiritual and moral decline, the division that exists within our own nation, it is a mess We Christians should nevertheless be the most hopeful, the most optimistic people. Because we know how this story ends and we know because of the resurrection. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus Christ in our first lesson from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Take a look at that, verse 20. Paul describes Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the first fruits? Well, I mentioned earlier that when Jesus Christ was raised on that first day of the week, God had done something astounding. Something that had never been done before. He rescued Christ out of the realm of the dead gave Christ an altogether new body, but a body that I said was incorruptible. Incapable of getting sick or diseased. A body that would never die. And I said nothing like that had ever happened before, and nothing like that has ever happened since. But what Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that one day it will. One day, God is going to do for us what He did for Jesus Christ. Johnny Erickson Tata is a well known Christian writer and speaker. She grew up in a very active home. In fact, her father was on the U.S. Olympic team as a wrestler. She enjoyed doing everything outdoors. She loved to ride horseback, to play tennis, and to run. Well, one summer while the family was on vacation in the Chesapeake Bay area, Johnny dove into some water without checking the depth. And she broke her neck and her back in several places. And for the past 54 years, she has lived as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. But in her autobiography, she writes these words. She says, I have hope for the future. She said, I have hope for the future, because the Bible speaks of our bodies being glorified. She said, I confess, I never understood what that meant, but I understand now. It refers to that time after my death, when God is going to do for me what He did for Jesus. He's going to take my broken body as He took His broken body and He is going to transform it. He's going to glorify it. It refers to that time when I, the quadriplegic, will be on my feet dancing. And folks, that's it. That's what the resurrection assures us of. It assures us that Jesus Christ is the first fruits, but He's not the last. I want you to try and imagine a world in which there's no more sickness, no more tumors, no more cancer, no more dementia, no more Lou Gehrig's disease, no more heart disease. Imagine a world where we, physically, emotionally, spiritually, are completely whole and sound. A place where there's no more suffering, no more sighing, but life everlasting. That is the promise that is given to us in Jesus Christ. He is the harbinger, the first fruits of the things that are to come to you and to me. He is the promise that for those who believe, it will end well. Now you may be thinking to yourself, that sounds wonderful. But it's just too good to be true. Where's the proof? The proof is all around you this morning. The proof is in the transformed lives of those who have come to know this Jesus Christ. The proof is in the empty tomb, the body that is not there. Easter, the resurrection, is the proof. Jesus is who he claimed to be, that the price has been paid, and you and I will live happily ever after. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen Amen.